This is Writer's Cast, a podcast about books and authors. I'm David Wilk, your host. Today I'm talking to Lon Samantha Chang about her book, The Family Chow, a novel being published by W.W. Norton. How are you, Lon? Uh, well, I'm going to call you Samantha because you did ask me to call you that, and I immediately called you Lon. So. No, it's okay. Everyone calls me Samantha, so... Um... I just thought, I'm doing really well, and thanks so much for having me. Well, this is really fun. And when we're talking prior to the book being launched, so and I never really want to talk too much about the um, plot of a book because I don't want to uh, disturb readers or you know put them off track by giving away too much of the story. But we can. There are plenty of things we can talk about related to this book. Um, so you grew up in. As I understand it, I did a you know check, kind of looked up your 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 story, and one of the things I found is a great article that you wrote in the New York Times um, in 1998 about um, Thanksgiving, and right. you, you talked about growing up in Appleton, Wisconsin, um, where you were um, one of the few Chinese American families, and um, maybe you could talk a little bit about what it was like for you to grow up in that place, um, you know, kind of foreign to your family's experience? That's a really, that is a question that sort of interests me in different ways as I get older and older, because my parents left China in 1949 um, separately. They were in Taiwan. Uh, Then when they came to the United States, when they were first married, they, they lived in New York and then at a certain point, it became difficult to imagine raising a family in New York uh, because it was expensive. And um, they decided they should go to a place that would give my dad a steady green card job. And they went to Appleton, Wisconsin. And that was in 1965. And they were the first Chinese-American family in Appleton, according to my oldest sister, who's significantly older than I was, and who can remember this happening. Um, suddenly, they were in a town of some, say, 30,000 people, maybe maybe it was 40,000 people. It had um, no Chinese people in it at all, and very, very few people of color at all, um, if any. And my sister remembers being the only Chinese American child in Appleton at the time. By the time I was born, um, well, by the time I was old enough to remember, there were two other families. And I pretty much grew up uh, feeling like I was part of a tribe of sisters in a town where we were unique. We were the only girls. Um, the other families had boys. So, very isolated. Um, and the isolation, I think, brought us all very close together as a family. We had a small house and there were a lot of us. I never remember having my own room until long after I left home. Um, there there was a sense of being pioneers. Uh, um, but what we were pioneering at the time, we didn't know. We didn't know that... Um, the Asian population in Wisconsin would grow or um, that, you know, things would become more diverse. When my parents moved to Wisconsin, they could not find anything in the grocery stores. 
um, that they were really super familiar with. There was a, a sort of culture at the time of um, cake from a box, uh, tuna noodle casserole, um, <laughs> yeah, lots of peanut butter, lots of peanut butter. Um, and my parents were looking for things like soy sauce, sesame oil, ginger, scallions. None of that was existing at the time. Um, and they kind of invented a cuisine. Uh, they invented a kind of um, Chinese-American cuisine that was based on what they had available and what they could bring out from Chicago, which they went to once a year to go shopping. Um, so we were we were very isolated in answer to your question. <laughs> No, it's so interesting in a way. I was thinking about the the book being, uh, you know, set in Wisconsin and being about um, a um, a first generation arrival, you know, family, just with written from the perspective of a second generation, and thought about it because um, it was so reminiscent of my ancestors arriving from Eastern Europe, Lithuania, in northern. Minnesota, also in Wisconsin, where some of them went. And I realized that some of the things you talked about just now and were are evident in the book must have been true for them as well. Um, you know, they couldn't find the food that they were used to making and the ingredients that they wanted. And they were the first of their kind to show up in a place where they were very different and didn't, in their case, didn't speak the language, had to figure it out on the fly, and really had completely different traditions. And, but they, I don't have the benefit of someone like you <laughs> within a kind of, uh, and I think this is a difference between the 18th, 19th century and today um, of being aware enough of one's own um, story to write it as a novel or write it even as a, you know, even as a memoir. Um, so I have no real firsthand knowledge of what their lives were like. And I have to think that it was similar. And I bet that this is true for a lot of people that the kind of first arrival story of being different in a place in the Midwest, particularly where you're surrounded by a lot of space and a lot of people who are really different um, has to be very similar, even though it's maybe a hundred years later. I think you're absolutely right. I think that's absolutely true. And I think when I was a kid, I was very into stories about the pioneers. Um, I remember reading uh, Laura Ingalls Wilder a mm -hmm. ton. Like the books just fell apart because I read them so often. And Best Reader Aldrich, you know, some of these um, older uh, writers from the early 20th century who were still able to remember or just one generation removed from um, pioneers, uh, immigrants. Yeah, you're, you know, the best, the best story of Wisconsin pioneer girls is Caddy Woodlawn. Um, oh, I read Caddy Woodlawn. <laughs> I love that book. I read it. I read it out loud to my daughters, and I just love that book. <laughs> That's so great. Yeah, I mean, I I did feel some connection to these stories, and then the other the other um, sort of media that I felt connected to was the TV show Gilligan's Island, which was running in reruns as I was growing up. It's quite an old show. 
Do you remember the show? Uh, oh yeah, absolutely. Because okay. yeah, they because um, I forget the guy's name who plays the main character, but he had been on Dobie Gillis, which was the show that I watched when I was a kid, um, oh. where, where he played a beatnik. Maynard G. Krebs. Oh, funny. Um, yes, funny. I, I was not a big fan of of Gilligan's Island, but it was unavoidable. It was, you know, you could, yes, it, it was it everywhere. Was everywhere. Yeah. It was everywhere. I mean, Gilligan's Island, I could relate to that because it was about seven people, castaways on an island, where they had to adjust everything they did to a new environment. Um, and there were, at times in our family house, seven of us, six of us plus my grandmother. And my grandmother learned English from watching Gilligan's Island. So I, I really identified with those castaways. Oh, that makes sense. You know, that's a great, yeah. in a way, a great term for uh, people who immigrate to a place that is so, you know, where they're isolated. Um, you know, I think it's different when you're in New York. It's different when you're in San Francisco or Los Angeles or Chicago or Milwaukee, where there are communities of almost any group that you could think of. Although I imagine when the Hmong came to Minnesota uh, after the Vietnam War, that that was similar a similar experience, you know, landing in a place where you're really, really different from everybody else. I think so. I think so. And of course, that informs this novel, uh, which is... Um, you know, it's the background and the backdrop for everything. A kind now, now, one thing I wanted to ask you about, and because I, I I read the brothers Karamazov probably too long ago to remember the story, but there were a couple of people who uh, blurbed the book and mentioned Karamazov um, as you know, kind of the family Chow being a, uh, a transmogrification, you know, a, a kind of modern version. Is that correct? Is that really yeah. yeah, what you It really is. The book is in conversation with the brothers Karamazov, <laughs> as they say. Um it is an homage. Um the the basic story is very similar. There's three brothers. They have a domineering father and a lot of, you know, a lot of the sort of um the basic feel of the book um, came from my deep interest in the Brothers Karamazov. I went through a period where I was—I loved that book so much that I was teaching cre- classes for no credit, where graduate students and I would just get together and discuss the Brothers Karamazov uh, over a couple of um, meetings because because it's quite a long book. Um, yes, it, it is. Be, yeah, we would meet for many hours and we would talk about the book. Um, and they didn't get credit for it. We just read the book because we really liked it. Um, and I think at the time, uh, the book sank into me so deeply that at one point I was exploring some work that I had written with a different point of view and a different sensibility and thinking, what, what is this? What is this book? And then at some point I realized that it was or could be very much like a sort of Chinese-American homage to the Brothers Karamazov. Uh, well, that makes it makes so much sense now. I didn't read those blurbs until after I'd read the book, and so I wasn't thinking about them at all or thinking about Karamazov at all. I was just reading and being, you know, transported by your storytelling, which I, you know, compliment you on doing. Um, you know, it's a an involving um, novel and 
there's so there's a lot going on with many different uh lots of characters to keep track of which i enjoyed well the idea is that you should be able to enjoy the book without knowing anything about the brothers karamazov and i think i think i succeeded in that effort because people have read it without having any idea right and they seem to have followed it and and but you know you're sort of in the tradition of of i think a lot of writing which is that um you know the there are some stories that are so resonant that it's impossible to not retell them in some way um because they're human stories yes yes very much and i grew up reading homages and enjoying them very much um for example uh, jane smiley's book uh, a thousand acres which is is uh, retelling of King Lear was a book I read in graduate school and, and admired. Um, and on, I, I just think, I just think that, um, certain works of literature do ask to be retold. Yeah. Well, I think it's unavoidable. I mean, it's almost like sort of Jungian that there are these, um, um, kind of elementals that are, part of our brain structure in some way Mm -hmm. you know they're part of the culture of being human whether it doesn't matter what the particular tribe you're from uh, Mm -hmm. is that those stories will be um, human stories rather than uh, you know kind of tribal stories and there are there are differences you know there are some traditions which are unique to that culture that will define those storylines but um, then there are those that supersede all tribalism and become human um, human stories. Yes, I think the idea of the larger-than-life father figure, mm. you know, the father who is kind of charismatic but embarrassingly, you know, straight, straightforward or politically incorrect, um, the, you know, the father who uh, has sons who wonder, am I, is this, is this what a man is, is this the kind of man that I have to be? Um, I think that resonates, uh, you know, through time. (laughs) Yeah. And also I think there are the comp, the complexity of that character is that, um, you don't know for sure who that, that he is. Um, you know, and, and I think that's fairly, common for a lot of father figures that they're the way you view them as the child of that person is not necessarily an accurate rendition of the full human flaws and otherwise yeah absolutely there is a passage in the book in which um the uh the narrator who's sort of outside of these characters kind of um aware of them all but sort of larger than they are says that none of the sons really knows their mother at all they they think they know her they know certain things about her but there are certain things they have no idea about and one of them of course is about the relationship the mysterious and you know enduring but frustrating relationship she has with their father right i know i was going to ask you about the mother because it's almost unavoidable to contrast her with him uh, yeah. you know he's the the bra- you know the, the big materialist uh, person and um, you know, concerned only about money, success, control, power in his sphere. 
and she, of course, is spiritual. And she is a much more mysterious figure in that way. She she is a much more mysterious figure than the father. In the original Brothers Karamazov, the mother doesn't exist. Uh, the female characters, you know, aren't um, that of the female characters. The mother is is the two mothers. There are two mothers in the Brothers Karamazov, but they just don't appear because they've passed away. Um, I I do think that the mom in this version is a person who I feel I understand her quite well. But I, but I think that to her sons, she's quite a mystery and that they're just beginning to grasp um, like the shape of her life at this point in their lives because they're adults um, of varying ages. She is somebody who was once very extravagant um, and a good match for their father in that way. You know, the kind of person who, if they invited over three families, would make enough dinner for six families. She was just very, very generous, very extravagant, um, you know, always making too much food, always doing too much, getting too much. Um, uh, and part of this, uh, the book implies, is as a, as a kind of response to this sense of loss because the family left China at a certain point and could, could not go back. Um, people don't remember this very well, but and I don't talk about it openly in the book, but there's a period of American history where communication and um, sort of back and forth between the U.S. and mainland China was non-existent. Um, it was during the time I grew up, and these characters um, also remembered this. Uh, so the mother has a past, the, the whole family has a past that they can't go back to. It's, a, it's in China. And um, as a result, I think this mother character um, just, just, you know, stocks her cabinets way full of food. And then in a kind of response against that, um, for reasons that the book tries to make clear, she becomes a Buddhist. Um, this is something that my grandmother did. My grandmother had a personality that was, um, you know, it was something that I viewed only toward the end of her life because she was obviously older than I was. Um, and I remember her as being a devout Buddhist and um, meditating all the time, you know, praying to the pusa, um, a vegetarian, a serious vegetarian. Um, but the stories I hear about my grandmother is that when she was younger, she was an extraordinarily extravagant person who, like one of the characters in the book, literally used three different kinds of meat in the soup during a period of war, which to me is is a personality of somebody who can't resist this this effort to just pile pile everything on, like make more and have more and um and then uh and then her transition to being a Buddhist consisted in giving all of that up, and in giving it up, she also gave up um her marriage right, which uh, is what the which is what the mother character does in the family chow absolutely. Well, actually, my grandfather died. My grandmother had to give him up. But yes, in, in The Family Child, the mother makes a decision. She decides to become a Buddhist. She decides that, you know, she wants to give up desiring. She wants to give up possessing things. She wants just to become tranquil, like she's seeking tranquility. That's what she's after for the entire time that she's in the book. And um, yeah, she's. I find her really interesting because, of course, she's similar to people I know. Mm. And and today, um, 
uh, you know, how do you, when you look back on the characters that you wrote, um, do you feel that you've, um, that their stories are over or are they still, uh, you know, are they still living and uh, more to, more to tell? I assume they're over. You know, okay, here's an interesting thing about the original Dostoevsky. He had planned two volumes to this book, and the Brothers Karamazov, as we know it, is only half of what he had planned. So um, the book has an unfinished feeling at the end. A lot of the major plot lines aren't entirely tied up. Correct. Um, my, <laughs> my book, I wanted to leave it that way too, but in a, for different reasons, I think. I was never planning to write a, uh, another um, volume of this, but uh, throughout the whole book, I adopted the present tense, which is a tense I've never used in writing before. Um, and part of the reason I used it is that in Chinese, there's, really not a clear past tense in the language. And I wanted to try to write like that. I wanted to try to write a book that unfolds in time in a different way than my other books had, just just to see if I could do it. And then um, the present tense kind of leaves the book open at the end for me. Um, you know, certain things are clear by the end of the book, but certain things are not. Um, I don't, I can't quite imagine what would happen in the sequel. In the Dostoevsky, uh, what what he clearly wants to have happen is, oh, I can't tell you. I can't talk about the plot. The plot is <laughs> the thing about this book is it actually does have a plot. I mean, I I grew up writing books that weren't so consciously plotted as this particular book. Um, and oh no! I this really... de- yeah no. This book definitely has a plot <laughs> and a surprise, and um, yeah. you know, kind of um, you know that that kind of oh, I didn't see that coming. Yeah. So you know that in that way, you yeah, we don't want to talk about that part of it at all. Right. Well, yeah, I enjoyed writing a book with a plot, though it was a real pleasure. Um, uh, it it. Um, it is though. It does make it a little more complex and tricky to talk about. <laughs> yeah, no, it does. And yeah, I, yeah. But that's an. I, for me, as a you know, when I, I talk to writers about their books, it's an ongoing challenge. But it kind of, yeah. in a way, it makes it more interesting to be able to talk about what a book inspires in your thinking, and not literally, you know, let's talk about the guts of the book as if it were, um, you know, a seminar on how to write a novel. Um, yeah. you know, in that, in, in, in that circumstance, everybody reads the book and then you, you know, you, you take it apart and try to figure out how it works and what all the pieces are. Um, I'm yeah. more interested sort of in the theoretical, um, you know, but, and also in the way that, um, stories, um, reflect back on us. So in a way we don't have to talk about the actual story in the novel. Yeah. Um, and still be able to, you know, and I and I think it's interesting, you know, this whole the positioning that you are in, you know, being in, and of course now you're back in the Midwest because you left. As I, I'm assuming, I you, did. Yeah, you left, and because when another one of your New York Times pieces, I think it was about Iowa City, where you landed about 15 years ago. Right. Right. Um, I left uh, Wisconsin to go to college, and I never lived in Wisconsin again after that. I was on the East Coast for eight years, then I went to the West Coast for about six years, and then I moved around a bit. I'm back to the East Coast, 
and then finally moved to Iowa City to take this job. Um, I think it's almost 16 years ago now, honestly. It was a long time ago. <laughs> um, so I'm, again, a Midwesterner, and I, I think um, that's my basic designation at this point. I've lived in the Midwest. Right, so you kind of identify as a Midwesterner in that way? I think I do identify as a Midwesterner. I didn't for a long time. I I think that I grew up with, you know, city people. My parents were both from cities, big cities in, in China. And so the small town we grew up in um, felt strange to them. And so it felt strange to me because I could feel their strangeness in it. And then I went um, to the East Coast for years and I enjoyed it there very much and felt pretty much at home. Um, but I... You know, I'm comfortable in the Midwest when I made the decision to move out to the Midwest. It it seemed to me that it was something I knew and understood. And um, yeah, I I pretty much think that I am a Midwesterner at this point. I wonder, you know, and I, I've in quite a few of the books that I've read and talked to the writers about have been either they're Midwestern writers or they, the novels have been placed in the Midwest or they're even nonfiction about the Midwest. And I just, interesting. you know, it's, I think that there is, I, I don't want to say that there's a Midwestern genre necessarily because that's kind of silly, but um, there are, I think there's a difference in outlook that comes from the Midwest um, and of course, there are many different states in the Midwest, so there are different viewpoints. <laughs> you know, Minnesota is not the same as Nebraska, and that's for sure. But this, you know, the idea <laughs> of open space, long distances between towns and cities, um, and a kind of um, uh, agricultural, you know, basis for um, maybe the way, maybe not necessarily sentimentalizing, but that there is a kind of romance with the notion of, of agriculture. And as you mentioned, the word pioneer, you know, I think that that's still alive in the Midwest. Um, and of course, there's the undercurrent of the theft of the land from its original inhabitants. You know, that's always present in the Midwest and West as much as it is in the East on a lot of levels, even though mm -hmm. the time frames are different. But I, yeah, I think there is a kind of a, a Midwestern outlook that you could um, identify with a lot of novelists who come from there. Um, I would be curious to know what you think it is. I feel sort of submerged in the Midwest, and so I can't tell. I mean, I know that there's a sense of being far away from a lot of cities and needing to sort of identify with one's community and be part of one's community. That I sense. In fact, I think that it's one of the reasons Iowa City is such a great place to write, um, because it's far away from distractions, because we have to turn our concentration to um, what's at hand to doing our creative work. Um, but I'd be curious to know what you think the Midwestern outlook is. Well, I've I've lived in the Midwest maybe five years of my life, so I don't think of my, I, I don't think it's I don't think I could make. Um, I don't think I have enough experience to necessarily say, but I think that there's something about um, the nature of the culture um, being separated from the urban West and East coasts and differentiating itself, creating its own culture. Um, you know, something about the history of uh, waves of immigration 
and struggle mm-hmm. um, that lives mm-hmm. on. You know, I do think that I believe in, you know, sort of epigenetic uh, culture that, um, you know, that it what happened before uh, influences what happens today. Um, the, yeah, that's interesting. There's a kind of stoicism that comes to mind when I hear you talk about, you know, waves of immigrants and struggle. Um, we're definitely not fast talking, self promoting people. I think as a result, people often underestimate Midwesterners. Oh, I think that's true. Yeah. Um, you know, that there's a sense of, yeah, judgmentalism from some area, you know, and I think that kind of helps understand some of the cracks in the fabric of culture today of, you know, the um, uh, not shared experience. Um, where very you know people have different understandings of how things are and should be, and um, I think there is a kind of gulf of experience in a lot of ways. Um, you know, it's, I read a book years ago um, that was a sociologist writing about how World War II changed the cultural fabric of America because prior to World War II, people that there wasn't as much movement between different parts of the country and there wasn't as much contact. So if you grew up in the Midwest, you only knew Midwesterners. If you grew up in the South, you only knew Southerners. Uh, if you grew up in the East, you only knew Easterners. People mm-hmm. obviously did leave and go, you know, there was a lot of migration, but by the 1930s, people were living in their places a lot or their experiences were defined by where they lived. And World mm-hmm. War II broke all of that up. You know, everybody... People joined the Army, Air Force, Navy. They were side to side with people from different backgrounds and people worked in factories who hadn't done it before. Um, You know, it just kind of um, upended the cultural norm. And I think in a way we've gone back to, you know, it's kind of rebounded into um, differentiation based on um, narrower experiences that make people less able to share culture. And maybe that there is that gulf of understanding between uh, people from different parts of the country. Again, uh, that, that's so I, interesting. Yeah, that, that w- it's weird because you wouldn't think that that would be the case, since we all, you know, theoretically we all watch. Well, we don't anymore. We used to watch the same television shows. That's right. And now people don't get their news from different voices. When we used mm-hmm. to, you know, everybody tuned into CBS, NBC, and ABC. That was it. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you, when you grew up and when I grew up. So I think that it is interesting to kind of think about culture and um, cultural understanding uh, influencing how we think about everything. It is. You know, that's a really interesting thought that we're in some ways moving back um, to a more geographically isolated set of cultures. Yeah, and maybe the pandemic makes it worse because people haven't traveled very much and they only hang out with this very, very small. um, Very small. Yeah, the cohorts are tiny now. Uh, Somebody mentioned this to me the other day that you have levels of friends. You know, you have your one, two, and three levels. The closest people you're still close to you find a way of connecting to them, but it's the two level and the three level and the four level and maybe even the fifth, which is people you kind of see in a desultory way. 
we've missed out on all of those. You almost have to rebuild them. And it takes time because they don't evolve overnight. Those are all kind of cultural and social relationships that we have just, we took for granted. Um, you know, the people you see when you go to the store, maybe the same person every time, maybe that's the fourth or fifth level, but you miss that um, familiarity. And it changes how you're kind of in more inwardly focused or in the daily life and outwardly focused in all of this media that we in, you know, we're imbibing um, at night, you know, like <laughs> online and, you know, whatever, millions of channels. And there you're always, you're looking out, but it's not a human, it's not a, a direct relationship with a human being. You don't go out to a bar and hang out with people at night. Um, you watch television. <laughs> so right. we're isolated again. And, you know, that's, yeah, I think that's, that has really affected, um, in a way, in course we won't know. I mean, it's kind of have to wait to see how that affects, how that plays out and what does it mean? I don't think we'll know for years. Yeah, I, I don't think we'll know for years. I mean, one of the things when I was writing my novel that occurred to me is that the community that the novel is set in is a community that it's it's an Asian American community, Chinese Americans. They're in a small town in the Midwest, and they're surrounded by people who don't know anything about them at all. They know each other's lives fairly intimately, um, but the but the community that they live in doesn't know them at all. They have their separate. Um, and and so one of the one of the things that happens in the book that I think I can say without giving away the plot at all is that this community has the experience of suddenly being seen by the town. Right. It's revealed that the 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 drama of the family puts them at the center of the communal attention. Yes. Yes, and that is one of the um, sort of major um, discoveries that they that they make, which is that that they can they 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 experience what it's like to be suddenly seen. Right. Yes. Yes. They're they're yeah. No, I thought that was very powerful that they suddenly are seeing themselves in a new way. Yeah. Um, that must happen. You know, I think that not just in you know in this particular story, but in other communities where events occur and suddenly there's this revelation that you're world is on view. Yeah. It's a shock, a shock to the system, which it was for your characters. Yes. Yes. Well, th oh, this, this was, we could talk for, for a long time, but I really enjoyed um, talking. I hope you don't mind, but um, I think we've sort of run out of time and um, I really loved talking to you about things beyond the book, but I really, I really liked the family chow quite a bit as a novel. And I'm, very glad to have read it and had a chance to talk to you. Oh, well, thanks so much. It's been great to talk to you as well. Thanks, Samantha. This has been Writer's Cast, a podcast about books and authors. I'm David Wilk, your host. I've been talking to Leon Samantha Chang about her wonderful novel, The Family Chow. <laughs>